Please uh, take your Bibles or one of the pew Bibles that are there in front of you and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians, New Testament book. It is uh, after Ephesians and before Colossians. And so if you find any of those three, you can get to it pretty easily. Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, wrote to the church that was in Philippi, a church that knew that he was, in fact, actively being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. He was in prison. He was chained physically and literally to Roman guards around the clock in house arrest. And they wanted to hear of his condition, of what was going on with his life, of and to be encouraged. And so he wrote this encouraging letter. And in the section we're reading today, uh, two, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we see this uh, really beautiful, almost poetic description of Jesus that, that Paul kept in his heart and wanted the Philippians to think about. And it was possibly... Even uh, from an ancient hymn, it could have been something the church was familiar with. It was one that they had sung, perhaps. And in it, he is encouraging them to share Christ's mind. Uh, Verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so what we're reading in this section about is what Christ was thinking in his life. What was in his mind As he accomplished the redemption he accomplished. How did it lead him to the life that he lived. And to the the victory he gained even over the tomb. And uh, last week as we looked at this same passage. We studied the first half. We said behold the Lamb of God. That's because John the Baptist when seeing Jesus come. Says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was a sacrificial lamb that would separate our sins from us forever. But in Revelation, in chapter 5 in Revelation, it says that in heaven they were looking for one who was worthy enough to unleash and carry out the decrees of God written on a scroll. And they found no one worthy until someone saw, it says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looked to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, what he saw, it says, was one who looked as a lamb that was slain. And and so the Bible puts these two almost contradictory pictures right next to each other when describing Jesus, the lamb who was slain and the lion who conquers. And in Philippians 2, you see both side by side. And so, as we read this, consider the lion who has come victorious. Before we read, let, let us pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on your word and the time we spend in it and the reflections we consider as a part of your word. We pray that you would help us receive your word with faith and humility and submission, that we would honor Jesus and be delighted in him and we would bow our knee to him. We pray that you would minister to our needs, that we could see the glory of our Savior and be won over to him. We pray for those who are here today, afraid, anxious, guilty, ashamed, 
or even those uh, who are here perfectly satisfied with their own lives, that today you would comfort those who are afflicted and you would help those who think that, that everything is just fine see how they need a Savior. We pray that Jesus would be exalted for us and that we could see him through faith according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2, verse 5. This is God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. It is completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. I suspect that a lot of you are familiar with the C.S. Lewis children's book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And it was one of the first you know, chapter books with stories and, and uh, multiple sagas that we read to our children. In it, C.S. Lewis creates a fictional universe in which he could display what he saw as Christian values and Christian heroes, what it's like to live in the real world, but done so in a fictional world. In it, the land of Narnia, there are those who are faithful and upright and noble, and those are the ones who bow their knee and submit to the emperor who is far off and to his son, uh, Aslan. Aslan is a, a talking lion, as are the, the inhabitants of the land of Narnia, talking animals. He is the king of all those animals. And uh, it's a conflict that's ongoing in the land of Narnia because of the white witch, who has, uh, for a season, gained a, a power and influence over the land that's caused suffering uh, in all of Narnia. And four children from England show up. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They find the land the way it is. And it's the occasion for when Aslan has come to renew it. Only problem is Edmund, one of the children, forfeits his life by betraying his brother and his sisters and the good citizens of Narnia forfeits his life, and is subject to great evil and suffering because of it. Aslan comes and offers to take his place, forfeits his own life so that Edmund could be rescued. Now, I hope what you're hearing is something very parallel to the Christian story. Aslan is a Christ-like figure. And as Aslan forfeits his life in place of another, uh, the white witch murders Aslan. But as the sun comes up the very next day, Aslan is raised to new life, a resurrection in the same mode as, as Jesus. 
But before that, the White Witch and her dark companions, evil in Narnia, feel like they have won. If Aslan is gone, there's no one to stop them. And so they engage in warfare against Peter and against Edmund and against the small army that's assembled to try to resist her, though Aslan has, has died. And as Aslan comes to life, he goes and he sets all these prisoners the White Witch had captured free and forms another army. And he's heading on his way to the place where the battle is raging. And I want you to hear about his arrival from Lucy's eyes. They had ridden on Aslan's back till they had gotten to where they could see the fight going. There stood Peter and Edmund and all the rest of Aslan's army fighting desperately against the crowd of horrible creatures whom she had seen last night, the night when Aslan had died. Only now in daylight, they looked even stranger and more evil and more deformed. There also seemed to be far more of them. Peter's army, which had their backs uh, to her, looked terribly few. And there were statues dotted all over the battlefield. That was the white witch's way to, to capture an enemy. She, uh, so apparently the witch had been using her wand, but she did not seem to be using it now. She was fighting with her stone knife, and it was Peter she was fighting, both of them going at it so hard that Lucy could hardly make out what was happening. She only saw the stone knife and Peter's sword flashing so quickly that they looked like there were three knives and three swords. The pair were at the center, and on each side the line stretched out. Horrible things were happening wherever she looked. Off my back, children, shouted Aslan. And they both tumbled off. Then with a roar that shook all Narnia, from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. Now, I love this story. It's so beautiful. That's the, the end of the white witch. That is the end, the beginning of the end of all evil in Narnia. Aslan conquers and his army conquers and you can go read the story I've shared the ending but that's okay you probably knew I want you to hear that roar that shook all of Narnia I want you to hear though that it's not the roar of a fictional lion it is the roar of the son of God in his resurrection in his victory over death and sin Philippians 2 is that roar it is the picture of the one who has come to conquer and at his name every knee should bow. What you see in Christ's victory is really God's ways. I want you to see what I mean by that. In that verse 9, it says the first word is critically important. Therefore, the old saying is you should always ask what is the therefore Therefore, it means because or something happened. So this happened. There's a cause and effect relationship. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus is highly exalted. He is lifted up. He gets a name above every name because of what we read about last week, because he didn't say I have to protect my place of privilege and honor because he said my honor it's okay, it's not threatened when I become a servant and place myself underneath others. When I consider their needs more significant than my own, 
I'm not threatened. And, and because he said obedience is a way of life, and it is not just a way of life, it is life itself. He became obedient even to the death on a cross because the cross didn't scare him. Obedience was his way and not even death could conquer it. That was his mindset. And because of his humility, God exalted him. That is God's way. It says three times in the Bible, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace or favor to the humble. This is God's way to take the humble and lift them up. Jesus earned the exaltation. He accomplished it by his humility, by his place. When Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, the ruler of all things, the transcendent God, put his towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, God the Father was already making plans to exalt him to the highest place. Because of his humility, God exalted him. This is the way of God. It is the path of a cross that leads to the crown. It is the path of suffering that leads to glory. Jesus was like a trailblazer. He carved a trail and he says to you and to me, follow me. Follow me on this path of humility, not so that you can exalt yourself, but so that my father can exalt you. It is God's way to exalt the humble. The path of God is the path of a cross that ends with him giving a crown. Notice even that Jesus is passive here. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The father lifted Jesus up. So delighted was he in what Christ had done. It is God's way. Last week, as we were looking at the first section of this poetic description of Jesus in verse six, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped there. Uh, the apostle is saying, though, Jesus was in every way, the full essence of God. He didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. He was fully and completely and utterly God, such that we could say there is nothing unchristlike, or nothing ungodlike in Christ. That Christ was utterly and completely God, and that, that He was the full expression of God in front of you. But here we see that that He's demonstrating all of God's ways in His life. That God Himself is humble. That the the glorious God upon whom the angels would cover their eyes and they wouldn't look upon him because of his great and awesome worth and glory, that God is today, right now, humble. This is God's way that Jesus is showing you in his humble life. And so God exalts him. We could say it this way. Just as we said there is nothing ungodlike in Christ, there is nothing unchristlike in God. Jesus said to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The 
Son of God, who washed his disciples' feet, is the same one who sits on the throne in heaven. The Father who sent his Son to rescue you from sin is the same God the angels sing praises to and worship and honor and cry out without end, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The same Spirit that God gave you as a guarantee of the full salvation who lives with you and dwells with you is the same Spirit who is worthy of worship and praise. This God unites humility and glory. We read of the glory and worship and God is glorious but he is, and he is exalted, but he is also humble. Now, that's hard for us to grasp, but God isn't like us. Here's how we do it. We say there are things to honor. You know, when people who are accomplished, we honor them with awards and recognition. When we see people who are wealthy, we honor them because they've got stuff that we like and want. When we see people who are really intelligent, we go, that's great. And we honor these glorious gifts, reflections of glory. But then we have places where that doesn't come true, where, where maybe I'm not quite as, as smart. And so there's a humility there where I'm uh, not quite as rich. I'm, I'm impoverished in some way. And so there's a humility there. The things I can't do, there's humility. The things I can, I want glory. But God says, I'm completely glorious and completely humble. He brings the two things together. And so he separates humility from position. He separates humility from accomplishment. He separates humility from saying, you know what? You're supposed to, to be humble because you don't have something. But humble is good in and of itself. It's in God. And here is partly why that really matters. The Father looks on Jesus' humility and he says, that is beautiful and worthy of exaltation. And so God is completely and utterly pleased. God the Father is completely and utterly pleased in his Son and what Jesus has done. And that means if you, through faith, are in Jesus, he is completely and utterly pleased with you. And you are exalted in Christ. And that takes humility. It takes us saying, I give up on my good stuff and my bad stuff. I give up on my sins and my rebellion. But I also give up on how righteous I could be and how religious I could be in order to make God happy with me. And instead, I trust that he is happy with me because of Jesus, not me. Now, this really attacks what I think is a, an insidious and deeply held belief that a lot of us have, which is that God is very gracious, and if I ask him to forgive me, he will. That's okay. That's a good belief. But then, here, here's what happens. I tend to think after I get forgiveness, okay, now I, I'd better not mess up again, or God is going to finally want to come and say, look, I already gave you this. Why can't you figure this out? We think maybe God is, is saving us because he saw our potential. 
You could be really great. You could have a great influence on the world. You have all this potential, and I see it, and so I'm going to rescue you. Now I want you to live up to it. The problem is, God doesn't save you because he sees your potential. He saves you because it glorifies Jesus. The, the name Jesus, the one that's above every other name, the name at which all will bow their knee and confess he is Lord. Jesus, we're told in Matthew, means Yahweh saves. The glory of God is on display in his saving you. And the reason he saves you, the reason he forgives your sins, the reason he is at work in your life is because it glorifies Jesus. And the Father is so pleased with what he has done that he wants many, many, many people to demonstrate his grace and what his humility accomplished. Does God see some potential in you? Absolutely. He sees you as one who could be made into the very image of his son, that you could have Christ's likeness. And he wants Jesus to be imitated, to be adored, to be the model. He wants Jesus to have many brothers and sisters. He says Jesus is exalted and at his saving name, which is above every other name, I want it honored and exalted. And you are the way that name is exalted by his rescuing you. It isn't that Jesus, that God is saying, listen, live up to your potential. Look what I gave you. He's saying, I love my son so much that I am going to rescue you for his sake. And he takes great joy in glorifying Jesus by rescuing you from your sins. Now, this is really great news. It means that your salvation depends a great deal more. In fact, entirely on the God who delights in saving than on your performance. Because the Father wants to exalt His Son, you are utterly safe. Therefore, because of what Christ has accomplished, He is exalted. Therefore, you are with Him. In Colossians, we read as our call to worship, your life is hidden with Christ. You're so tied to him that the only way for the father to honor the son is to rescue you. And because of what Jesus has done, the father is utterly committed to, to honoring his son. You are completely safe. And then it tells us that not just that Jesus is showing us God's ways, but that he has completely won. Listen to what Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Above every name, every knee, every tongue. There won't be one who re resists this ultimately. He has already won over every voice, over every agenda. The knee represents someone who bows their knee and submits to a king. And they have to give up their uh, sense of, of autonomy. They acknowledge another authority that's over them. That's what's in play here. 
that when Jesus' name, which is above every other name in honor, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everywhere. Here's what this really means. Just a couple of things to think about. It means that, there, that Jesus has won and there aren't even really any challengers. That, that there's no second place. Jesus has won. Because what we might often think is that there's Jesus, sort of this great power for good in the world, and there's maybe the devil or somebody else that we think of. It's a great power for evil. And uh, that they're at war with each other. And that it's two massive heavyweights battling it out for the, for the universe. And we're pretty convinced that Jesus ultimately is going to win. But it sure is a struggle. And he's barely going to edge out the other guy. That is not what's on play here. There isn't an equal power or even a close to equal power. There is the creator God and the things he created. And some of God's creation has rebelled against him, including you and me. But Jesus will say to everything that can speak, now is the time to bow your knee and every knee will bow. Remember when Jesus was on the earth ministering to people and someone came with demons? The, the height of a picture of rebellion against God and the demons would say, what have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torture us before our time? When Jesus would say to the demons, go, they didn't hesitate. They must obey. There isn't an equal power. Jesus is over it all, and he has already won. And I want you to see that if it's every knee that will bow and every tongue that will confess, it means that Jesus knows how to get you to submit to him. Here's why that's really, really important. You and I kind of want to submit to Jesus. We want to, to bow our knee and to do things that obey him. But we also don't want to. I have this warring desire in my heart. Sometimes I go, yes, Jesus, I want to do anything you want. But I really don't want to spend my money that way. You know, the way you command. Jesus, I want to do anything you want. But I don't want to have to forgive that person who hurt me like that. Jesus, I want to do anything you want. But, but don't ask me not to, to put others' interests more than my own. i got to take care of my own interests first. And then out of the excess, I'll take care of others. And so I keep having this war that says, yes, Jesus. No, I don't think so, Jesus. But look, he says, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess there is a day coming when you will no longer have that war. Jesus knows how to help you submit. How to put that sin and that rebellion to death. This is great hope for you who trust in Christ. He is going to win out over even the sin that remains in you. But it's not just the believers who will learn to submit those who remain in rebellion, it says in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it could be he's just saying, let me think of any place you could think of so I can say it's everyone. But it seems also that what he is saying is in heaven where the angels are, where the saints are, where those creatures that God has made who have all been pure, they will bow their knee and with great joy say, Jesus is Lord. And there will be on the earth, every human being will bow their knee 
and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And under the earth, well, we think of this, heaven's up here, we're on the earth, and hell is down there. Even the inhabitants of hell, confirmed in their rebellion against God, will bow their knee and declare Jesus is Lord. Now, when that day comes, if you are trusting in Christ, if you have come to see Him as the great King and Redeemer that He is, the bowing of your knee and the declaring Him Lord will be to you great joy. To those who have rebelled against Him, it will be a, a painful declaration. You are Lord, and I resent it. You are Lord, and I want to rebel against it, but I can no longer do so. It will be people who say, I don't want it. And so, let me urge you, this day, see the great king. The great king who became a servant for you. Who didn't cling to his position of honor, but walked in flesh that he might take your sins to a cross. That he could become obedient to death and a death on your behalf. See this great King and bow your knee to Him today. Confess Him as Lord today that you might enjoy this day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Perhaps you might have heard that there were a couple of big football games in Mississippi yesterday. If you uh, do any kind of social media, I'm sure you heard about it. Apparently, it was... Uh, Mississippi's day to shine. Two powerhouse football teams fall to the folks in Mississippi who, let's be honest, have been a little hapless in the previous years. Now, those of you who went to the games or who are big Mississippi State or Ole Miss fans, wasn't it joyful yesterday? Wasn't it great to see the final score and to say, my team did that? And it's great like that when the stakes are low and it's football. Imagine when the stakes are eternity and you look upon Jesus and every knee is bowing and every tongue is confessing. Won't there be great joy when you see Jesus victorious over it all? Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to see and anticipate that day to cling and hope for it to bow our knee today so that we will enjoy the day when Christ's victory is on full display. We pray that you would help us exalt Jesus now for you delight in him and we delight in him. We pray that you would give us faith to see this great Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.